0: Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. It's also printed in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emma. Good morning, church. Well, in 2022, last year, uh, best friends Ann and Marlisa won the lottery. They won a million dollars in Canada. Now, if you're like me, you've probably fantasized about all the different ways you would use those lottery winnings. Maybe you're going to quit your job. Maybe you're going to pay off your debts or buy a new house or buy something nice or go on vacation. There was a survey in 2018 uh, that asked the question what you would do with your lottery winnings. And you know, only 7% of the people said that they would give to charity. So when Joanne and Marlissa decided to give away the bulk of their winnings, they did something very unusual. And why did they do that? Well, as you dig into the story, you find out that Marlissa, her brother, died from alcoholism. And so they wanted to, to give to places that he may have encountered on his journey, places like the Salvation Army or a food pantry or the Soldiers Hospital, various nonprofits that were local. They were motivated for a love for her brother and a love for others. They wanted to give away because they saw the peril, the danger of alcoholism, what it could do to a person, what it could do to a family, and they wanted to provide some kind of benefit to people who are going through struggles. Now, the gospel is just like this, actually. We, we want to give the gospel away because it benefits others. But unlike lottery winnings, the gospel doesn't run out. It doesn't run out. You know, when Joanne and Marlisa, they gave away the bulk of their lottery winnings, they didn't really have anything left. But when we give away the gospel, it actually deepens. It actually grows within us. Think about this. If you were to win the lottery, if you were to to have trillions and trillions of dollars, and I'm saying if you win an infinite amount of money, I'm sure at some point you would decide to give some to your family, right? You would decide you would then give it to friends, co workers. You may even, if you had that infinite store of money, think about giving it to your enemies, people that you don't like. The gospel is like that. We have an infinite store of the good news of Jesus Christ, and we don't run out of it when we give it away. In fact, What we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is something to give to people that is so much better than lottery winnings. We have the words of life. We don't give away a philosophy. We give away a person. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. And so how do we give away this gospel? I want us to think about how the gospel truths have been operating in Colossians. We're coming up to the end of the book now. But if you remember and rewind to the beginning, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us about Jesus, who he is, the greatness of Jesus, and what he has done for them. And those gospel truths just don't sit there as some abstract philosophy. They begin to impact the Colossians personally. And that was chapter three. That yes, they could change. That the gospel brings transformative power to the individual And then we see that the gospel just didn't stop there, that it went on to impact our marriages, our families, our workplace. You see how the gospel is radiating out and now in our passage before us, it radiates out to the rest of the world, those who are lost. And so how do we give away the gospel? We give it away first by watchful prayer. And then it is followed by a wise walk and winsome words. Watchful prayer followed by a wise walk and winsome words. And we see this watchful prayer in verses 2 through 4. Watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. That word watchful should bring to mind Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed. He asked the disciples, watch with me and pray. It has that same sense. It's the very same word, which means to be alert so that you don't fall into temptation, so that you don't fall away, so that you don't get distracted by something else. And so in our context for the Colossians, they were to be watchful. Why? Because we had learned that there were these false teachers, and trying to draw them away, trying to trip them up about what the gospel really is. And so the Colossians are encouraged to be watchful, to be alert, to not be drawn away from the gospel of Jesus. Now, thanksgiving is a way of remembering who Jesus is, all the good things that he has done for us. It's a way for us to guard against drifting. It's a way for us to to guard against being drawn away. Have you ever thought about how giving thanks is a way to, to confront all the things that we may be facing? Maybe you've come in here this morning and you're facing some sort of rejection or persecution in the gospel and giving thanks, you remember that Jesus has gone through this for you already. Maybe you're struggling with approval, and the gospel reminds you that you are approved and eternally loved by the God of this universe. Maybe you've come in here this morning, and you're suffering affliction. And the gospel reminds you that Jesus suffered affliction too. And in fact, in one day, you will be revealed with him in glory. Giving thanks is a way of remembering the gospel, the good deeds of the gospel, that Jesus is delighting and singing over you right now, that he's rejoicing over you. The scripture says that you, if you are in Christ, you are the apple of his eye. The special focus of his attention. Giving thanks is like an antidote to all that ails Christians. It's a way of preaching the gospel to ourselves. You know, honey is a little bit like this. You know, in the old days, they used, to, they used to use honey for everything, right? If you had a sore, they would put honey over it. If you had a sore throat, you would take honey. If you were coughing, you would take honey. If you had a stomach ache, you would take Honey. Giving thanks in prayer is like honey. It's the antidote to what we are facing, the trials that we are facing. And we do that through prayer. Well, the Bible tells us what to pray many times. It tells us how to pray. You heard this exactly this morning when Brad was giving our intercessory prayer. We even get some of the why about prayer in the Bible you know that what we probably don't get is, we actually don't get maybe how does it actually work? How does prayer work? And I think this is probably at the root of some of the reasons why we struggle so much with prayer, not only because of unbelief, not only because of busyness, but sometimes we struggle to know how does prayer work? How does the intersection of God's sovereign will intersect with my will? And we tend to teeter between maybe a pagan approach in Paul's day where when you prayed, you summoned the gods on your behalf and they jumped into action for you. They went to work for you. That's one extreme. The other extreme is maybe more of a Hindu approach where you, you shrink to the fate of the gods. You are totally passive in what the gods are doing. Those are two wide extremes of thinking about prayer. Some of you may know Eugene Peterson. He is the pastor's pastor. He has since passed away. This is how he came to understand prayer, and he does it in a very strange way. He does it through understanding uh, Greek verbs, the voice of Greek verbs. There are three of them to know about. There's the active voice, the passive voice, and the active looks like that that pagan approach, where we get the gods to work for us, and the passive is where we're just going along on a stream of what they're doing, but then there's this third voice called the middle voice, the middle voice, and it's where we participate in the actions of another. Prayer is the middle voice, where we are involved in the action and we participate in the results but we don't originate it, we don't control it, or we don't define it. And so when it comes to prayer and giving the gospel away, which is what we're talking about this morning, we have to have this understanding that we participate in the actions originated by God. You know, there's a hyper-Calvinistic view about this which is like the passive view. That God is sovereign. He's going to save them anyway. Why do I have to pray about it? Why do I have to do anything? And then on the other end of the extreme is the totally active approach. I have to do something. I have to pray. Otherwise, they won't come to Jesus. The middle way. The middle voice is that we pray because God is at work. And He works through prayer and He works through witnessing to bring people to faith in Jesus. That's what we see in Romans chapter 10. How will they believe if they don't hear? So somebody has got to bring the word of Jesus to them. Some people would argue well, God is sovereign. Why should I pray? That actually is the very reason we should pray. If God is not sovereign and in, in control of salvation, then why pray at all? He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the capability to do anything about it. But because God is sovereign, because he is gracious, because he is loving and he has patience that is the reason to pray that he has the power to convert anybody and so this is a wonderful truth that we've got to get a hold of you know what it means it means that person in your life think of this one person in your life that you think they will never come to Jesus not that person a sovereign God says yes I can save anybody Think of the Apostle Paul persecuting the early church, murdering Christians saved by the grace and power of God. And so we ought to pray with this middle voice, knowing that we participate in the actions of another. That is God who is already at work. And we also ought to pray knowing this, that when we give the gospel away, it's not our clever words that initiate some kind of action. We're talking about bringing the spiritually dead to life. We're talking about opening the eyes of the blind. We're talking about softening a hard heart. None of us can do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray because we admit we are fully dependent on the work of the Spirit to transform a heart. You know when, when Debbie and I bought our very first house, uh, this was back in the day when the internet was not readily available. Hard to believe, right? There wasn't this thing called Google. Uh, Wi-Fi wasn't in every house. And so, what was I to do? I mean, buying a house is a scary thing. There's just so much to to figure out and navigate. And so, what did I do? I called my dad. I called my father. And I began to learn about things like a down payment and how much I would need and what I could afford, these things called taxes, property taxes and insurance. You know, I would have never tried to buy that house without first talking to my father. I would have failed. And we ought to have this same approach when we go to giving away the gospel, sharing our faith. We ought to go to our Father first, because the reality is we are 100% dependent upon him working ahead of us. And so what this means, when being watchful in prayer, is that we ought to be praying for those in our life who don't know Jesus. You can start this simply by making a prayer card. Put their name down a prayer card. You know, on on your phone, there are so many wonderful apps these days to help you keep track of your prayers. And use this as a way to instigate prayer. When you see that person that you are praying for, pray for them right then. You You don't have to designate a special time to pray. You could be praying all the time. If you're walking through your neighborhood and you see your neighbor, pray for them. If you're in your car and you're you're leaving for work and you catch a glimpse of that neighbor that you've been praying for, pray for that. You can pray for them while you're driving. God, give them the same grace that you gave me. Let them see the beauty, the awesomeness of Jesus. Let every interaction drive you to prayer. Be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving, but also... In order to give the gospel away, we have to have a wise walk and winsome words. We see this in verses five and six. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the very best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so our very... Lives When he says walk, he's talking about the way you conduct yourself, the way you live. It ought to be in a wise way. That word wisdom means having discernment, being perceptive, being sensitive to the situation. Now, the the context here is for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And he unpacks it a little bit by saying, by making the best use of time. And what he's talking about there is redeeming the time. Buying back the time. And he's, and he's saying something very similar that he's already said to us in verse 3. Where, he, where the Apostle Paul is saying, pray for me for an open door for the gospel. It's virtually the same thing. What he's saying about being wise in your living so that you make the best use of your time is being wise how you live, being sensitive how you live, so that you get an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And this requires sensitivity, perception, emotional intelligence to what is going on with the person that you want to approach. You ought to be asking these questions and thinking about where are they in their faith? Where are they on their faith journey? What season of life are they in? Are they even open to hearing about the gospel? Or as soon as you say the word Jesus, is the shields going to go up? And even beyond that, you ought to be sensitive to what is going on in their everyday life, in the ordinary everyday of their life. What are they celebrating? What are they they struggling with? What What is their story? Intelligence, emotional intelligence, sensitivity, perception, wisdom. Take the time to get to know them as a fellow human being. You know, I'm not discounting the fact that there are are certain times, there are certain opportunities where you can plunge right in and go right to Jesus. And God may give you those opportunities. But if, if you're more concerned about sharing your faith than knowing their story, I would ask you to pause, to check the motivation of your heart. Check the agenda of your heart. You know, if if your neighbor is uh, rushing off to an important meeting, that's not really the time to hold them up and tell them about Jesus. But if your neighbor has recently lost a loved one, maybe that is a time to come and bring a meal to share a conversation of care and concern. Might not be the opportunity to, to share the gospel, but but it's it's. it's It's in ministering in that way that's going to open the door for later gospel conversations. Scripture says that we should walk wisely. That's what it means. But we should also, with our words, they should be seasoned with salt. Now, salt makes food taste better. It gives it more flavor. It makes it more attractive. The Greek philosopher Plutarch who lived incidentally at the same time as the apostle Paul when he uses that word salt halas he says this about it it makes food delicious attractive and get this it leads to joy because it makes food more enjoyable so are your lives the way you're living your life the way you are speaking to other people is it attractive is it drawing people in? Is it, is it enjoyable for people to be around you? You know, recently uh, we bought a car, and uh, it was a used car, and it was an enjoyable experience. And, and, and most of you guys would say buying a car is a horrible experience. This was an enjoyable experience. Why? Because of the person we were working with. You know, this person, they were more concerned about us getting a good deal, about the integrity of what they were representing, that this car was gonna be everything we wanted it to be. They were so concerned about us, they were, they were less concerned about scoring the deal. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But I can think of situations in the past when we bought a car, we bought a new car, and I, and, and I can remember a situation where it was like going into a used car lot and being treated by a used car salesman. The interesting thing about this story is our first car I talked to you about was a used car. It was a used car salesman, but we were treated wonderfully. Now I'm going into a new car dealership and I'm being treated like this person is a used car salesman. And I think you know what that means. They were more interested in scoring a great deal for themselves. They were more interested in their agenda than me. They, we had this feeling like we were being handled. Like that there was something going on. You know what happened is we got to, you know how this goes if you've bought a car. You get into that room and there's all this negotiation for hours and then you get all the paperwork ready and you're about to sign the deal. And someone comes in and they says, hold on a second, we read your odometer wrong on your trade-in, so we've got to make an adjustment to the price. Just a few thousand dollars, we can just change that and then go on with the deal. Well, that spoke volumes about what was going on. Their actions, their words jeopardized what they wanted to do, their agenda. And so are your words, are your actions jeopardizing, undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do people not like to be around you? Are you boastful? Do you talk down to people? Are you critical all the time? Are you that one neighbor on your street, in your neighborhood that no one wants to live near? Because you're too demanding. You're too critical and complaining. Does your social media draw attention to maybe your tribe, your politics, or your sports, but it's pushing people away from Jesus? Or is your life a picture of what we saw in Colossians chapter 3? That is a life of grace. Putting on the clothes of Jesus, compassion, compassion and kindness, and humility, and forgiveness. Are you enjoyable? Are people drawn in to want to know more of your story because they're looking at your life and they're blown away? The gospel is not only the message that we give away, but it shapes how we give the message away. And we can undermine the gospel by our very words, by the way we live, by our very character. You know, perhaps the greatest thing you can do to share the gospel is to share your weakness. You know, everybody on planet Earth actually has this in common. It's the one point of commonality that we share with everyone, that we are broken by sin, that we don't have it together. That yes, at times we are like those hypocritical Christians. We say one thing and we fail so many times to live up to what comes out of our mouth. To remember that we are sinners saved by an extravagant grace. D.T. Niles, Daniel Niles, was a pastor in what is now Sri Lanka. You may have heard this quote He says this, evangelism is one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find the bread. We should never forget that the thing that separates us from the lost is the extravagant grace of God. That's the only thing. It's the only thing. Well, the reality is we, we all fall short of giving away the gospel. We struggle with this. I know that I have struggled for years with this. Uh, I have given the gospel away because of guilt. I have given the gospel away out of duty. I have done it out of ego, ego. I remember a time when I was uh, a young believer in college and it was weighing heavy on me. I was told that I needed to give away the gospel to share my faith and, and it weighed so heavy on me that I thought, you know, today, I'm gonna share with two people. And so I, so I got up the courage, and I went and knocked on doors and shared it with two people. Thankfully, God redeems it even if we do things out of duty, even if we do things out of guilt. What was in my heart and what was in my head is that I had to do these things for Jesus. And you know, this guilt, this duty, even ego, These motivations, they're not sustainable. They're certainly not honorable to God. When we look at the lives of the apostles, giving away the gospel even to the point of death, what is it? What is it that motivated them to do it? Well, our motivation will start to shift when we see that it's not doing it for Jesus, but it but it's the fact that we get to do it with Jesus, that Jesus is already at work. He's already at work drawing people to Himself. We get to join in with Him, participate in the actions of Jesus already at work. Thankfully, Jesus is not sitting around waiting for the church. You know, I think the greatest struggle when I consider my heart. Perhaps you may may feel this as well. When it comes to giving the gospel away, the issue in my heart is a lack of love. You know, we do what we love to do. We pour into what we love to do. We invest time and energy and money and effort in the things that we love to do. And what I'm talking about here, you can see in the life of Jonah. Jonah at the very end, when he was called to preach the gospel to the people in Nineveh, he was so much more concerned about that silly plant that it gave him comfort and security and pleasure. That's what mattered most to Jonah. Not compassion for the lost. And so what it points to is that I need to get more of the gospel into my hard work heart. Pastor Jack Miller says this. He would take that quote I told you earlier and he would say it this way. Evangelism is one hungry beggar eagerly eating the bread and being changed by it and then telling the other poor beggars to eat the same bread. I need to eat that bread of the gospel. To be amazed by Jesus, to be astonished by his beauty, and to be changed by it, and then to tell the other poor beggars to eat of that same bread. I need my guilt to turn to love. I need that duty to turn to delight. Only Jesus can do that in my heart. You know, there's a narrative in Luke chapter 7 that kind of captures what I'm getting at here. In this story, uh, Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon to eat a meal. And there was this woman who went along, who heard that Jesus was there, and what did she do? She was like a parasite. She was at Jesus' feet. She, She couldn't stop crying, and she's wiping his feet with her hair, and she can't stop kissing his feet. She can't stop anointing him with oil. And the Pharisee is getting fed up with all that is going on. It's like she's ruining the party here. And this, is what, this is what happens. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And when Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus launches into this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And then Simon the Pharisee answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, yes, you got it. That's exactly what's going on. The reason she is pouring out love on me is she has been forgiven much. She who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. That's you. The Pharisee, that's me. And so we need more of Jesus. I need more of Jesus. I can't help to to want to delight in him when I see and am amazed by the beauty of what Jesus has done for me. That he would lay down his life so the vastness of my sins could be forgiven. How can I expect people to delight in Jesus if I am not delighting in him As well. You know, we don't have the power to fulfill that second greatest commandment to love others until, first of all, we fulfill the first greatest commandment, which is to love God. And the only way you can love God is to be first loved by Him. Loved by Him and when we see the vastness of his love in his son laying down his life for the forgiveness of your sins you're going to love others and you're going to give the gospel away would you pray with me our gracious heavenly father what wondrous love is this that you would set your love upon sinners Father, our sins are many, but your grace is so much, so much more. Help us, Lord, to be amazed and astonished by your beauty, to see more and more that Jesus is beautiful, that he is majestic, that he is loving and gracious. Lord, let that transform our hearts. Let that motivate us to share the good news of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.